Good day, everyone. My name is Ashley Ewald, class 2025, and I am the creator and the host of this podcast. Today's special guest is a Cambodian-American author and a survivor of the Khmer Rouge genocide. Please welcome Luang Ong. Hi, everyone. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, Ashley, for having me on. And um, yeah, I am just having a good day. Hoping you're having a good day, too. Thank you. And it's such an honor to have your time. And today we're going to discuss your journey. Now, many of you may not know what Khmer Ridge was or about the Cambodian genocide. So today we brought a survivor and I was fortunate to read your first book, First They Killed My Father, in my history class. I was so moved by your story and the tragedies that your family suffered in the genocide in the 1970s. But could you talk to the audience today about your experiences? Sure. Um, So I came into the world many, many, many years ago, um, and uh, way before you were born, probably before your parents were born, in 1970, in a country called Cambodia, in its um, Southeast Asian nation. Um, and in Cambodia, when I came to the world, had the, the country had a, a population of 7 million people, and um, 90% or so of them were Buddhists, of us were Buddhists, and, and um, farmers living off the land. Like many other Cambodians at that time, I grew up in, uh, I grew up with both my parents with me and um, going to school three times a day, six days a week. And then on the weekends, we go, we went to the temple because we were Buddhists Um, and uh, spending my days playing with my three sisters and my three brothers and hanging out with my family. And um, that childhood would come to a quick end, an abrupt end, on April 17th, 1975, when a group called the Khmer Rouge soldiers, the Khmer Rouge, uh, um, who were, the Khmer Rouge were um, the name given to the communist groups. Khmer is the word we call us Cambodians, where the, the Cambodians were Khmers, that's the word we call ourselves. And then Rouge is the French word for red. So they were the Red Cambodians. They were the nationalist communist group that took over the country on April 17, 1975. And they took the country with this goal to create a new society where there would be no class, no caste, where everybody would be equal, where power would be taken from the elites and the leaders of the society and given to the poor and the peasant and who they call or believe to be the true revolutionaries and um, and everybody else and anybody and, and anybody who didn't believe in their vision of this new nation were deemed as enemies of the states and traitors. Um, so for the next three years, eight months and, and 20 days, approximately the span of your college career, Ashley, my life would become stranger than fiction and, um, and so surreal where all my rights were taken away from me and my family one by one by one. Um, and, um, and then by the time the war ended, I would lose both my parents, two sisters, 20 other relatives, along with in Cambodia, out of a population of 7 million people, 1.2 to um, 1.7 to 2 million Cambodians would die from starvation, disease, hard labor, and execution. Yeah, and that is, uh, I just, I don't know what to say. Thank you for sharing. And just about that, how did you, how did you 
What made you stay so strong? I know in the book I read about how your father helped give you so much hope, but what what kept you going? Um, the the Khmerish took over the country, and then they evacuated all the cities and and all the our no. They, they evacuated everybody out of their homes and made them to live in countrysides that were more akin to labor camps. And and um, and every day we worked. We dug trenches and built dams and grew food that would be taken away by soldiers in trucks with their guns. And then we weren't fed and we were hungry and we were starving. And then the trucks would come back with guns and to support and to fight a war that we didn't want and we didn't vote in and we didn't have anything you know we didn't know anything about um and so for me i think when my body got very hungry what kept me going was um why i wanted to live for my family there when when i didn't know what life was when i didn't know what breathing was when i didn't know whether or not there was anything redeemable in in the in living i wanted to do it for my father because i knew how much he wanted me to live i knew how much my mother wanted to me, me to live i knew how much my family my siblings wanted me to survive and um it, it's a real precious gift to have people care for you to have people love you to have people who want you to be well and so i i share this now because I think sometimes in our world we feel so alone and so isolated and it is so important to have family members to have loved ones to have um friends to have a support base who want you to be well so that when you don't have the strength yourself you could borrow their strength you could be gifted with their strength and their courage and their grace and so for me um I personally wanted to live for them And then as I got older and I learned more things, I wanted to live for revenge. And then as I got more angry, I wanted to live so I could go back and could grow back um, and, and go back and, and to change the world, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Um, but as a child, I didn't know about activism. I didn't know about human rights. I didn't know the powers that we have to make a difference, to affect change. All I knew was that I wanted I wanted to support my families and I wanted to live for my mother and father and brothers and sister. That is so powerful. You know, you're very resilient and persistent and it just shows throughout your story. And once you you know, once once it fortunately ended, tell us during your first years in the United States, what was it like to be an immigrant who didn't know how to speak English? And what was it like to integrate into American culture? Well, I my heart breaks so much nowadays watching what's going on in Ukraine and and the invasion there and seeing the the children and the family members who have had to identify the bodies of their loved ones and who've had to cower in fear from the bombs and from from the explosions and from the horrors and from the soldiers coming in because I remember that very very clearly when I first came to America I was 10 years old I didn't speak English I didn't know anything about America I didn't know I didn't have any American friends I didn't have any American family members or family members who came from Cambodia to America first who could teach us so I didn't know anything and I remember we arrived in June of 1980 
and and um, we were sponsored by these great group, this great group of, of Americans um, from the Holy Family Church, and who was so kind and well-intentioned, and who also wanted to share with us the wonderful things about America, one of which was Fourth of July, the Fourth of July festivities, and so um, just you know, two weeks or so after I arrived in America, after having spent four years in the genocidal Khmerish regime, ha after having actually experienced real bombs exploding over my head and on my and, 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 and hit the bomb shelter I was hiding at, and to have my friend who was nine years old die next to me, my my sponsor took us to the Fourth of July fire, fireworks. And, and I remember my American friends, new American friends, all and all the people at the fairground getting so excited and people were lighting sparklers and people were just with anticipation of, of excitement of the show, the show, the fireworks show. And, um, and I could feel my skin crawl and my, my, you know, my heart raced. And when the first firework explosion went up and exploded overhead, I was crying and was trying to hide underneath a bench, wondering why Americans didn't see the war on the, the war now in America, why they didn't see that the soldiers were coming back. I had this very vivid, intense flashback and PTSD triggered by the loud fireworks. None of my American friends understood. The people didn't know that, that the explosion was so loud, it felt so real that I felt it in my body and, and the sound of a mother uh, holding a baby and the baby's crying all of a sudden just became the sounds of wars. Um, and so that was my really kind of first American experience. And to this day, I've had to learn how to take care of myself, how to be kind to myself, how to be aware that every single 4th of July, I have to be very much balanced and healthy um, because things like that could still trigger me to have a PTSD episode. Um, so that that was one thing. The other things were that there was, food was different. Um, did not to this day and do not still understand what blue cheese is all about. <laughs> and, and because I, we were, um, I was so small from four years of being, not having enough food to eat, that the Americans were trying to give us milk of which I am lactose intolerant. And so I cannot drink milk. I cannot do dairy. And, and so I've had to learn about what I needed for myself, for my mind, for my body, but also the wonderful things of realizing that there are good people in our world. There are good people, there are kind people, people full of grace and joy, and people who want you to succeed. And people who, when they extend their hand to shake yours, they are not hiding a knife or a weapon behind in their back, hoping to hurt you. After I've gone through so many years of war, I've had to unlearn that. I had to unlearn that people were unkind because in order to go from surviving to thriving, you have to believe in the goodness of the world. And, um, and that's why I'm really happy to talk to you, Ashley, because, because you are with your work. You're doing that. You're showing that. You're expanding and extending, extending upon that. Thank you so much. That means so much to me, especially coming from you. 
And I just, I hope listeners can hear your story and listen to that. I really appreciate, and I think it's so powerful how everything you went through, you were able to rise up. And the fact that you said that, you have to believe that there is good in this world to thrive, go from survive to thrive. That's so powerful. And just in general, and studying, you know, what you've done after the Khmer Rouge genocide, your work with the nonprofit of the Landmine Project, how did dive more deeply into that? Well, I was, um, when I went to college, I, like many other young freshmen, did not really know what I wanted to study. But I knew I was always curious and always passionate about politics and passionate about making a change and creating change. And so I did volunteer work in high school. Um, I did the um, the Hunger Garden program, the Hunger Garden, the, the, the garden programs, community garden program. And um, I joined student activities in, in the national student activities as well as, as just regular student activities. And um, that I went to college and got my degree in political science because I believe we have the power to make a difference. We have the power to create change. And, um, and I believe that peace is not an automatic. Peace, whether it's in your heart, in our community, in our world, at our school, um, in our home, peace is not something you wish and therefore expect it to be granted. Peace is not something you want and wait for other people to work on it and deliver it to you. Peace is not something you wait for your government to work on and to commit to and strategize and actually sit back and do nothing about it. So whether it's in your home, in your community, in your heart, it is something you must commit to. It is something you choose and strategize and work on and and on a daily basis so choose to be a better person choose not to have a road rage day choose to be a kinder person choose to say hello to somebody today choose to make a difference because it's not just you do have that power um and so i um after college i chose to work at a domestic violence shelter for three years to help women um who've been harmed and and student in in hurtful relationships um find healthier ways to live. I then worked with the campaign to ban the use of child soldiers and then to ban the use of landmines. Um, And I was very much inspired, um, or actually very much passionate about working on landmines and ridding our world of landmines because they are these weapon systems the size of a hockey puck or a compact powder that once in the ground stay active for decades and you can buy a landmine in our world for one to three dollars and then um, put them in the ground and it could be 10 20 30 50 years after the war has ended a friend or a foe, and it matter not whose foot step on it and step on the mine and the, everything below you, rocks, dirts, toenails, grass, bones, shoes, would shoot up and, and disintegrate your flesh and melting off your bones. And it would just, and to survive, you would have to have your limbs amputated. And for children who step on a landmine, it's a lifetime of pain and scars. And and um, because your, your stomp may heal, but the bones will, continue to grow and will protrude out of your stump and and so as a child you would have to go to a hospital or a clinic and have your limbs cut and we cut and we cut again until you stop growing 
for an adult, it's a lifetime of pain and scars because there's this thing called phantom pain. But even though your limbs are no longer there, you continue to feel the pain. And I'm so passionate about it right now because landmines is, again, being used all over the world and, and have been harming and injuring and, and, and taking one life, one limb at a time at a rate of many thousands of people per year. Um, and um, as a traveler, as somebody who loves to go hiking, somebody who grew up in New England and hiked in the mountains of Maine and Vermont, and then also loved going to any one of the 70 countries in our world where there are landmines, how do I know if we don't work on this? How do we, any of us, know that our next step will be a safe step? And so when, when I choose to work on various different campaigns. It's not only a choice to do the work because I want to assist anyone else, but it's also, I choose to do the work because it's the right thing to do. And it's also the thing that we do for ourselves. We do to protect ourselves as much as we protect others. Um, and, and I really believe strongly that we all have this power to make a difference. Yeah, I believe that too. Thank you, thank you. And just in general, like, after all the things that you've been through and just your landmine project and everything like that, you have a documentary that Angelina Jolie had helped, she directed. And what was it like to see your story on the big screen? Yeah. Well, it's, first of all, it's not a documentary. It's actually a feature movie. It's a feature film. And it's called First They Killed My Father, and it is streaming now on Netflix in 190, 150 countries. Um, and um, it was really wonderful. And I'm so grateful to work on a project with somebody I trust and somebody I love and somebody whose integrity as a woman, as a mother, as a humanitarian, as a human rights act, you know, workers, um, and, and somebody who cares passionately about our world. I'm, it was a privilege and an honor to work with a, a friend as well. Um, what was it like to see the film? And, and it was very emotional and very powerful for my family, for myself. And more importantly, it was so encouraging and healing to work with 20,000 Cambodians extras, the musicians and the actors, um, the producers, the assistant producers, the, music, you know, the, the costume designer, the makeup art artists. To make a film, a film like ours, we, had, we worked with 20,000 people and we shot the film for four months in Cambodia. And it was such a joy. It was such a healing and spiritual experience to spend four months in Cambodia with so many Cambodians and, and Americans and other Westerners making and working on a project that we all care so much about, um, that we all work on with the goal to help people not only know a little bit more about Cambodia, but to know the strength, the resilience, the grace, the generosity, and the love of the Cambodian people um, and those who survived the war and those who are thriving in life. Yeah. That's incredible. I'm so, that is speechless. That's incredible. And I watched it too. It just, it really does. And it really like summarizes your book so well as well, like, you know, and it's just, I encourage every student, professor, staff, parents that are listening to watch her film because it's very powerful, but most of all, read her book. 
And just in general, your story is very different from many of the authors in the books I read in my modern global history class. And what stood out to me the most is the fact that like you, you know, you lost your parents and, and all the other authors, they lost their parents as well. But the fact that you use them as motivation to survive, is just, it's very powerful. And then it being able to rise up and to come to America and doing all these incredible things. Like how, how do you go about making a difference in this world? And how would you encourage other people to do the same? Um. I think, you know, we have, there's so, there's so many things going on in our world right now. So many things. I believe that we are born into the world with a certain sense, with a sense of curiosity and compassion and generosity and grace in life. And then as you go on in life, you go to school and you go out into the world, things are things come at you so quickly, especially now with, with the technology that we have, that, that they overcrowd us, that they confuse our sense of self and our sense of identity and our sense of voice and, and, and narrative. And the, the, you know, I think the tool to not just finding the voice and finding the work uh, but also finding your identity is to listen to your, the vibration of your heart strings. And that is so important to listen to the vibration of your heart strings. We all, our hearts are made of, of many chambers. And I always imagine to me, your heart similar to visually like this violin and that there are certain vibration that when you play on it, that just really hits the right note. And so it is for young person, especially, and anybody else, professor, young person, you know, adult, um, old people like myself, it's that when you're reading a book or when you are watching a television show or documentaries or news stories, to listen to the vibration of your heartstrings. And this will lead you to to what you really care about. Um, because there are over a million, um, over 1.5 million charitable organizations registered in the US right now. There are so many different things that we can get involved with, that we can work on, so many issues that we need to know about, but we can't know about them all. We can't work on them all. And what we need to do is to work on the ones that you are most passionate about. Because when you connect your passion and your action together, you can you will actually stay on that track on that path much longer and therefore creating a, a sustainable change instead of of you know instead of something that is very truncated and abrupt um, and so I really think that's what student needs to do is listen and to pay attention and then get involved once you hear that vibration then research it find out what it's about find out why you care about it you actually may care about student government and that is the vibration of your heartstrings. That is the note that is most authentic to you. You now, your work is to find out why you care about it. What is it in your history? What is it in your family? What is it in your community? What is it in your heart that is making you care about this so much more than other 
been other um, issues and projects. And once you understand that more, I believe that then the issue in you will be so much more bonded and you will stay on this much longer. That's what we need. We need everybody to not just get involved, but to get involved and stay with it and stay with it. I have been involved and, and have cared about human rights issues for over 30 years now, probably more like 40 years. I started when I was in high school. And the things that I care about when I was in my teens, when I was in college, when I was in my 30s and 40s and 50s, have only grown stronger because I listened to the vibrations of my heartstrings. Um, and so I think it's very important to do that. And then, and then research, get involved, take action, work together, and also know that what you do matter. Do not lose faith, do not lose hope, do not, do not, um, do not go into the dark side. Always know that there is light, that there is hope, and that your voice and your actions and your work absolutely will change somebody's life. If not the world, somebody's life who is just like me when I was a little girl, who is just like you, Ashley, um, and, and that will make all the difference to that person. And who knows what that person's going to grow up to do? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have like maybe about three more minutes and then I got to jump on the next call. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ms. Muang. Awesome. Any last remarks? That's incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Um, last remarks. Have a great time at school. Enjoy yourselves. Learn and study, love and live and laugh. And also don't forget to work on your compassion, your kindness, your generosity. It is, I think often adults are always telling young people, be a good person, or be studious, or study hard. I'm here to say all that, but also be kind, be generous in spirit, be compassionate, be empathetic. Yes, and all of that is from Luang Ong, everyone. Thank you so much, everyone. And don't forget, follow the Pichu Times podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.